Hello, and welcome to Highland Park. I'm Pastor Jim Richland, and on Wednesday nights, I'm leading a study called Twisting Scripture, where we look at all the ways Scripture is misused and what to do about it. Last week, we looked at two of the seven uh, big ways that Scripture is misused, and those seven were as follows. Um, Misquoting the text, inaccurate translations being used, those were what we covered uh, last week. Uh, Tonight we're going to be covering uh, surrounding context ignored, reading into the text, and then uh, going forward we'll look at emotional interpretation, avoiding other passages, and descriptive and uh, prescriptive confusion. So uh, I won't belabor the point with misquoting the text and with... um, with, um, with inaccurate translations, y'all already are aware of those, so we won't um, go through that any further. Hold on just a second. There we go. So, um, moving on to surrounding context uh, ignored. What this basically means is when we are studying God's Word, or when someone is teaching and preaching God's Word, uh, it's easy for us to just isolate a verse or a section of a verse or even a couple of verses without looking at what is, um, what's immediately preceding that, what's immediately following that. And when we take something out of context like that, you can twist Scripture to say just about anything uh, you want it to say. Uh, and that's why one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that context is king. Uh, And what I mean by that is that for a verse to mean anything, it has to be situated in context. If a verse is taken out of context, as I said, it can be made to say anything at all. Um, A word only makes sense in context. A sentence only makes sense when uh, it is put in its proper context. You see this all the time in the news where people rip things out of context to say whatever they want. The same is often done with God's Word. In fact, a lot of scholars, um, both Jewish scholars and Christian scholars, uh, make the argument that when it talks about um, um, using God's name in vain, oftentimes we think of it as um, saying God or Jesus in a way that's not referring to God or Jesus. And that may be a part of it, but what a lot of scholars are, are argue is that using God's name in vain more directly goes to saying that God is saying something that he never said. Does that make sense? Um, When you, in fact, just here recently, there were a lot of billboards going up all over America that were talking about um, quoting scripture as though it was um, advocating for abortion, saying that God is okay with abortion, that abortion is a good thing, and that, you know, it's something that God approves of. That is in a way taking God's name in vain putting words in God's mouth, okay? We want to avoid that as much as possible, all right? Um, D.A. Carson, who's a very well-known theologian, uh, he said this, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Again, that's just a funny uh, theological way of basically saying um, when something is ripped out of context, It is setting up what is going to be proof text. And we're going to talk about proof text in a little bit. Proof proof text is essentially where you are ripping something out of context just to make a point of what you want to say. I want to say such and such. Let me look all throughout Scripture to find justification for what I want to say. All right, I'll rip that out of context. There we go. Now I've said it. 
and I got scripture to back me up on it. All right, that's proof text, and I've done that before. <laughs> You've probably done that before, but we need to avoid that if, if at all possible. We don't want to know what Jim says or Daryl says or you say. We want to know what God says. Okay, if you approach the Bible trying to find justification for what you already believe, you're starting on the wrong foundation. All right, uh, so let's look at some examples of what this means. All right, here's one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Y'all probably heard this before. Oftentimes it's used in the context of um, sports. I hear it a lot of times in sports. You know, each team thinks God's on their side and God's going to give them victory and I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me and all that sort of stuff. And I understand the, the... the mindset, I think, behind it, that through Christ, if I just persevere, I can do anything. That's not at all what that verse is saying, though. So let's look at that in context real quick. Here's what the verse says in context. It says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no, you uh, had not the opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to be, have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, so my question to you. In context, looking at the verses that came just before that verse, what is Paul talking about there? Absolutely. So whether I'm hungry, whether I'm fed, whether I'm cold, whether I'm warm, plenty, don't have anything, I can be content. Not happy, not you know, skipping for joy that I don't have any food on my plate or anything like that, but I can be content knowing that God has me, He's watching over me, I can be t- content in Him. Christ is the one who strengthens me in each and every circumstance. It's not about... You know, I can do anything if I just put my mind to it and I trust in Christ. That's not what it's saying. You can't do anything you want. Okay? You can do what Christ wants you to do. You can, you can, uh, you can uh, do whatever he's called you to. But this isn't a verse to, again, build you up and encourage you to chase your dreams and follow your heart. And Christ will empower you to do that. That's not what this is about. Paul was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He, he endured some of the harshest treatments. And he was able to do it because of Christ, not because Paul just mustered up the, the can-do attitude about it. Okay? So we have to be careful on that. Um, here's another example. Okay? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 11. This is on keychains. This is on bumper stickers. This is something to encourage people that God has a plan for you and his plan is a good plan. You're going to prosper. He has nothing but great things in store for you. The problem is the context doesn't support that. Okay? Now I'm going I'm to read you a little bit of the context. We're not going to get into all of it because honestly to get the full context you've got to read almost an entire chapter of what Jeremiah 29 uh, is really all about. Um, but let's look at a little bit of it, and then I'll kind of fill in some of the gaps that we can't cover. This is what it says in verse uh, 10, just the verse right, right above our verse that we just quoted. It says this, This is what the Lord says. 
when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So let me kind of fill in the context a little bit of what's going on there. Just in that preceding verse, it says, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And this is a part of my plan, my plan to prosper you. Let me, let me break it down for you and, and uh, Jim paraphrase. I'm going to take you out of where you are comfortable. I'm going to take you out of what you love and what you hold most dear. I'm going to place you in the most uncomfortable place. I'm going to take you into exile after you've seen your, um, your, your homeland burnt to the ground, neighbors killed. I'm going to put you in this captivity for 70 years. There were false prophets saying, oh, it's, we're going to be back in our homeland you know, within a year, two years. We'll, we'll be back real quick. Jeremiah comes along and says, no, get comfortable. Uh, make gardens, build houses, support Babylon, because you're going to be here for a long, long time. Some of you will never leave Babylon. Some of you will die here in exile. But don't worry, the overarching plan that God has, not for you as an individual, but for the people of God as a whole, is good and will prosper. Okay? Sometimes God's plan for us is excruciating. It's painful. And if we sit here and we tell people, well, don't worry, God's plan is a good plan, it's here to prosper you. Yeah, in the long run, you know, in eternity, in the perspective of eternity, yes. But there are some people who, in this life, on this earth, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. And that's okay. We're trusting God. Does that make sense? That's more in line with the context of what this verse is saying. And it really lines up to what you see throughout church history. There have been people all throughout church history who have suffered tremendously for the cause of Christ, and they never saw relief in this life. You know, go and take this verse ripped out of context and go preach it, you know, uh, to people who are suffering on the mission field. You know, it doesn't really ring true unless we put it in its proper context. All right, that's a little pet peeve of mine. This verse written out of context I, 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 drives me crazy, but so I'm trying not to preach right now. Here's another example. Judge not that you be not judged. You've probably heard this time and time again. This is um, a favorite verse of atheists and agnostics to throw uh, in, in people's faces. Um, that's not at all what this verse is saying. People throw this in Christians' faces when they don't want us to call out sin as sin. Okay, Stop being hypocritical. Stop judging me. You shouldn't judge. The Bible says not to judge. That's not at all what it says. Here's what it does say. Judge not that you not be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. And then the very next verse, which we won't get into here, uh, to here, it talks about not casting your pearls before swine, which sounds like a very judgmental thing to say. How can I judge uh, whether or not I am casting my pearls before swine? The point of it here is... Not that judging itself is bad. You can't live this life without making judgment calls. 
Okay, if you don't make judgment calls, you're not going to live very long. Okay, we all make judgments. The point is really that we can't make accurate judgments on others unless we first also deal with ourselves. The whole point is take the plank out of your own eye so that you can see clearly, so that you can judge accurately to take the speck out of someone else's eye. When I'm sitting here with a big plank out of my eye, I think everyone's got a plank in their eye because the plank is all that I see. And so I have to deal with myself. Then I can go and I can make judgments and I can help other people get free of what's in their life as well. It's not a verse that we rip out of context to use to other people so that they stay out of our business. All right? It's a verse that we deal with our business so that we can help other people with their business. All right? And let me give you another encouragement. And this is something I've never heard until here recently. And I, I want to be careful again because I want to give the benefit of the doubt. But one place that we as Christians can really struggle with this type of thing is in memory verses. We can easily rip memory verses, one memory verse here, another memory verse there. And that's, I'm not saying don't memorize Scripture. Yes, memorize Scripture. But you need to know what the context of that Scripture that you're memorizing. Does that make sense? Um, and, and we need to be careful of that with our kids. When we, if we're teaching them to memorize Scripture, make sure they understand what they're memorizing. Don't just memorize for memory's sake, but know what you're quoting and know the context of it. That's important. Well, let's, let's take a look at um, the next little thing. I want to look at some uh, types of, um, uh, of context that we need to be mindful of. So as we're trying to avoid ripping things out of context, here are just a few things that we need to keep in mind so we don't do it. And when we hear other people using Scripture, we can kind of keep these things in context so that we understand what this passage actually means, even if the other person is misusing it. Uh, one example of this is literary context. Now, um, by this, what I mean, I'm talking about the words, the sentences, the chapters, uh, the type of literature, the book that it's written um, in, and just the Bible as a whole. So let me break that down a little bit. Um, we need to, when you're reading, let's say, um, Psalms, that's poetry. That's, that's not just poetry. It's not like a haiku. It's not like you know, uh, Emily Dickinson or anything like that. This is ancient Hebrew poetry. And just like there are certain rules in our poetry, there are certain rules in Hebrew poetry. We need to keep that in mind. Uh, one example of this is in Hebrew po poetry, um, there is what is called a parallelism. All right, And what that basically means is there'll be a line of poetry, and then the next line will say the exact same thing, but maybe just a, a one or two words are changed around for emphasis. And so it's saying the same thing, but it's trying to draw your attention. It's almost causing you to pause in that poetry to really consider this point. Okay, um, So that's something to keep in mind. How we read a historical narrative, like the book of Acts, like Genesis, uh, like the, the book of Exodus, stuff like that, um, is going to be very different from how we read something like a prophetic literature, like the book of Revelation, like certain portions of Daniel. And that is another thing to keep in mind. A lot of the books of the Bible will have multiple different types of literature within them. So Genesis, for instance, has poetry, has symbolism, Hebrew symbolism, uh, has narrative in it, um, has genealogies. All these are specific literary types that we need to be aware of. In the same way that you don't read a... Um, a fictional novel the same way you would read the phone book 
or the same way you would read uh, a textbook on chemistry. Okay, they're very different and they are written with different styles, different rules, and things like that. You need to keep that in mind. I often see people, well-meaning people, read all of Scripture in a particular way, no matter what the literature is. Let me give you an example of this, and hopefully I won't you know, kick over too big of a hornet's nest with this. We often talk about how we need to take Scripture literally. And while there is, in some contexts, yes, that's true, in some contexts, no, that's not true at all. It depends on the literature within Scripture that you're reading. For instance, when God said, uh, when Scripture says that God is a rock, do we take that literally? No, of course not. God's not a rock. When it says that He's a fortress, do we take that literally? No, He's not literally a fortress. That's a symbol. Okay, it's it's meant to be understood as a picture of something, and so we need to be aware of that. We take Scripture seriously. And where it is, uh, the, the literature in Scripture is meant to be taken literally, that's where we take it literally. When it's symbolic, when it's prophetic, when it's some of these things like that, we need to understand culturally what those literary devices are meant to communicate and how we're supposed to read them. Does that make sense? All right, we'll come back to that in just a second. Let me look at uh, some of the other uh, contexts that we need to be aware of. Another one is historical context. Okay, what I mean by that are two things. One... We need to understand that while the book, while the Bible was written um, for you, it was not written to you. All right, let me say that again. I want to be very clear on this. Yes, the Bible was written for you, for your edification, for your building up, for you to know who God is and what He's like and how you need to live. It was not written to you. It was written to an ancient people. It was first written to ancient Hebrews who had just come out of slavery. It was also written to um, first century um, Jews and Gentiles who were being persecuted. Okay, If we ignore that and read it like 21st century Americans, we're going to miss what God is actually saying. Now, does it apply to us? Absolutely. But in order to know how it applies to us, we first need to know what it meant to its original audience then we can understand what it may mean to us today. All right? That's really important. The other thing um, about that historical context, not only do we need to understand the time in which it was written, so when we hear about you know, Abraham married uh, Sarah, who was his half-sister, we think, wait, well, hold on, wait a second. She was a half-sister? That, that sounds kind of off. In that culture, at that time, that's, it did not have the same connotations that it has nowadays. Okay, When we hear about um, where Ruth needed to marry her kinsman redeemer and it needed to be in the family of her deceased husband, again, it had a certain cultural context, certain expectations, um, things like that. We need to be aware of those things. All right? And I'm going to talk a little bit about how we can be aware of those things. Um, but knowing what it's like to live in ancient Middle Eastern culture is going to go a long way in you understanding how beautiful God's Word is, especially the Old Testament. And people discard the Old Testament so often. It's really sad because that's some of the best parts of Scripture. All right. Anyways, I'll, I'll get on a tangent with that as well. last thing I, I want us to, to know is applicational context. What in the world do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. You can't apply all Scripture the same way. 
to all people. Okay, let me give you two examples. All right, uh, one example is what I would say are universal laws and commandments. Okay, thou shalt not steal. Applies to everyone at all times, no matter who you are or where you are. Don't take things that don't belong to you. Don't murder. All right, you shall not murder. That's pretty self-explanatory. There's no real uh, wiggle room around that. It applies to all people at all times, everywhere. Okay, but there are some things in God's word that are not universally applicable in the same way to all people. It depends on the context. Let me give you an example. Honor your father and mother. What does that look like? Is it possible that that could look different for different people at different times? I would argue yes. I would argue the way that I honor my father and mother may look very different because they live, um, my mom and dad, they live many states away. Okay, And I'm not able to care for them and look after them and honor them in that way as opposed to someone who maybe lives right down the road from their mom and dad. And my parents, their health may be very different, the circumstances, than your parents. I'll give you another one. Honor the Sabbath. I believe that it's important in Scripture to take a time of rest. But does that mean that we need to uh, legislate how you should take your Sabbath? Because there were times where, you know, and even still today, the Jewish population, you can't um, ride the elevator on the Sabbath. You can't use your phone on the Sabbath, your smartphone. You can't go but a certain distance on the Sabbath. There, were, there was a time in American history where you cook your meals on Saturday so that you don't have to cook it on Sunday because that would be work. Okay? And then what does that look like for pastors? Because some of my busiest days are on Sundays. So am I, am I abusing the Sabbath as I'm trying to minister to other people? You see, context with certain parts of God's Word... It depends, and you have to know, okay, this is a law, this is a command, and this is a principle. And so this applies to all people, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and this over here may look different from person to person, and I need to give them the freedom in Christ to apply that as they see fit in their context, and being able to know the difference between those. Right? Uh, but real quick, so uh, in, the, in the time remaining, I'm going to look at a few other things real quick. Uh, how do we read the Bible in context? So I'm going to share with you uh, some resources that will help you. If you want to make sure that as I'm reading the Bible, I want to make sure I understand it in context. Here are some things to look at. One, read the surrounding verses. That's pretty obvious. We need to read what's before and after a particular passage. If someone quotes the Bible to you, if you have time, take a look at what's coming before and after that. Take some of these Phrases that are often thrown out there, these Bible verses and stuff like that, take some time. to Maybe that could be a part of your devotion, just looking at the context of each of those verses so you know what those passages are actually saying. Okay. Um, another one is read the introduction and study notes in your Bibles. One of the great things about the time that we live in is there are some really wonderful scholars, theologians, um, translators who have given us uh, study Bibles that have great commentary, great introductions to books of the Bible, so you know what the context of that particular book is, what kind of, who was the author, who was it written to, what was going around during that time. Um, and then when you get into the study notes, a good study Bible will also give you context into some of those verses as well, let you know what was going on during that time, what the culture was like during that time. That is a tremendous help. Um, and honestly, they don't cost a whole lot, a lot of these resources. 
Also, invest in a good Bible background resource. All right. Again, if you already have a study Bible, a good one, you're already going to um, have some resources in that in that way. Um, I shared with y'all earlier about the Blue Letter Bible. Uh, it's an online uh, free resource. You just go blueletterbible.com. Uh, it has commentaries. It has interlinears. It has background stuff. It has all kinds of stuff for free. But if you really are dead set into spending some money on some good resources, here are just a few. Uh, one is, or this is a series, the IVP uh, Bible Background Commentary. They have both an Old Testament and a New Testament. Okay, if you get these, and they're great. Um, if you get them when you open it up, it looks like almost, um, it almost looks like a dictionary. Okay, and as you're working through it, it'll have. Every book of the Bible, chunks of verses that give you some in-depth, I'm talking in-depth, Bible background on what was going on in the culture, what was going on in this passage. It's a wonderful resource. I will warn you, though, it can you can get lost in it. You can get very um, tied up and, and, and sometimes even confused in that. So, But if you're really into the Bible background stuff, that's a good resource. If you like something a little bit more uh, digestible, something that's a little bit... Uh, easier to just kind of do in your Bible study. You don't have to break out a bunch of books and, and take notes and stuff like that. Um, the culture background, uh, this one here in the middle, the cultural backgrounds study Bible is a great resource. They have articles in the Bible. They have um, uh, most of their study notes throughout the passages are fixed on the cultural historical backgrounds of those passages. Wonderful resource. Um, so if you're looking for a Bible, that's a great one to do. I think they have different translations. That one's an NIV, but I think they have it in several different translations. All right. With that said, let's uh, try to uh, cover our, our next little abuse of Scripture. We're going to try to hit this pretty quickly. Uh, reading into the text. This is where you are not reading out of the text, but you're reading something into the text. There are two words, fancy words, that make you sound super-duper smart if you want to use them. Uh, it is exegesis. You hear that thrown around a lot of times in conservative circles. Um, do you preach, preach exegetically? Is this an exegetical Bible study? All that means is reading out of the text. You are drawing out of the text the meaning of the original authors. That's what exegesis, exegetical studies, that's out of, to draw out of. Asegesis, spelled with an E, not an A, asegesis is you're reading into the text. You're putting something in the Bible that was not there originally. You are putting your own thoughts, your own assumptions, your own theological worldview into the Bible. We don't want to do asegesis. We want to do exegesis. We want to take out of the Bible what God originally put in there. So how do people sometimes do this? We read into the text whenever we fail to acknowledge or question our assumptions, our biases, or our opinions when reading the Bible. All of us, hear me very clearly, all of us have assumptions, have biases. We have certain ideas and opinions. We all have a lens through which we see everything in life, but especially God's Word. Okay, And some people's lens is a good, you know, or it's maybe a little bit more accurate. Some people, not accurate at all. But we all have a lens, and when we read the Bible, we read it through that lens. You want to, as much as possible, be willing to let the Bible inform your assumptions and questions and beliefs rather than you superimposing that onto the text, okay? 
hold your beliefs and assumptions about what God's Word says and what, about what the Christian faith is with open hands and say, God, I'm willing to change this if that's what your Word says. Don't be married to your, your thoughts and opinions and, and stuff like that. All right, let me give you some examples, all right? Apostolic succession, basically where the Roman Catholics get the Pope. Okay, they get this from uh, Matthew 16, where um, and I'll just kind of summarize this for y'all. Y'all got the passage here, but basically this is where Jesus um, tells Peter, Peter, and he uses the Greek word rock. On this rock, I will build my church, and the Roman Catholics will see that and they say, Ah, you see there, it's on Peter that they're building the church. It's on Peter that they start. He's the first pope, and every pope from there is just a lineage, an apostolic uh, succession of popes from this. This is where they get the justification for. Is that what the text is saying? No, that's not at all what the text is saying. There, I could get into a lot of the, the Greek words and, and stuff like that you know, that we talked about earlier, but if you get your interlinear out, okay, and you start looking at the difference between Petros, which is Peter, and Petra, which is rock, very different. Petros is obviously a noun, it's a name, and it's masculine. Petra is a rock, and it's feminine. He's talking about the rock in the third person, he's talking about Peter in the first person. Okay, it's, Grammatically, they're very different. He's not saying, Peter, I'm building the church on you. It's, Peter, I'm building it on this rock, this confession that you just made, that I am the son of the one true and living God. That's what I'm building the church on. Okay, But Many people who want to see an apostolic succession, a bunch of popes, will read into this text what's not there. Okay? Another quick one is here in Colossians 1.15. It says, uh, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will look at and say, ah, you see there, Jesus isn't God. Jesus was the first created above all, all rest of creation. Is that what that says? No. And we can look at that when we look at the word there for firstborn. It's not talking about firstborn in succession, like one, two, three, four, but it's firstborn as in preeminence. You are the firstborn. You are the high and lifted up one. You are the preeminent one above all of creation. That's what that word is literally talking about there. But again, if you rip it out of context and read into it what you want to see in it, you can read whatever you want. All right. Here's another one, Colossians 4.16. We talked about this the first night of our uh, series here. It says, After this there is, uh, has been read to you, see that it also is read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. And a lot of people will look at that and say, Ah, you see there's a missing book of the Bible. We have Colossians, but he's talking about some other letter to the Laodiceans, and we don't have the book of Laodicea. So there must be a missing book of the Bible. So this must be what Joseph Smith found when he found those golden tablets. He found these missing books of the Bible. Or this is what you know uh, uh, some of the Jehovah's Witnesses found whenever they got new prophetic revelations. It was these missing books, and God gave it to them. That's not at all what this is saying. If you think about it in context, there were lots of letters that Paul wrote. But when Paul... Um, when Paul told Timothy later on, bring all my uh, parchments and stuff like that, he was amassing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit all the letters that he wanted to be included into Scripture. If Paul were to write to his mom, should we include that in Scripture? No, because just because Paul read, uh, wrote it doesn't mean that it's Scripture. It's in what God inspired Paul to write and what God inspired to be included in the canon of Scripture. Does that make sense? You can read whatever you want into these texts. Uh, also, so how do we, uh, how do people read into the text? Let me just give you a couple real quick. 
proof texting, where you rip a verse out of Scripture to say, ah, see, here's why we believe this. Now, we all do that from time to time. It's not a problem of proof texting as long as you know the context of that verse and you're not ripping it out of its original context. Does that make sense? I can, um, I can give you Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, as the Great Commission. All right? Am I ripping it out of context? No, because that is the context. Jesus is telling the disciples before he leaves, here's what you need to go and do. So can I use that as proof text for the Great Commission? Yeah. Can I use that as proof text for you know, uh, standing and looking at the sky for long periods of time? No. Were the disciples doing that? Yeah, but that's not what that verse is about. Okay? Um, and so proof texting is okay if you know the context, but be careful of it, okay? It's very easy. Silence as evidence. Um, we need to be careful of saying, well, this is true, or this is what the Bible teaches because you don't read about this in the Bible. You think, wait a second, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Do people really use that? Yes, people use that. Let me give you an example of a pet peeve of mine, um, and I hope that this doesn't stomp on anyone's toes too harshly or anything. Um, I hear people all the time when, uh, when we talk about um, end times type things, people say, well, you know, America's not going to be in the end times because you don't read about it in the book of Revelation. And their thought behind it is, well, America is a global superpower, and if it was around during that time, surely it would be written about. They didn't know America existed at that time. Okay? They also don't have in the book of Revelation light bulbs, but I bet you light bulbs are going to feature prominently in the end times. Okay? Just because it's not written in the text doesn't mean that those things aren't around or that that's proof of any particular thing. Silence is not evidence. And the thing is, could America be around during the end times? Sure. Could it be destroyed? Sure. I don't know what will happen. Okay? What I do know is that I shouldn't point to the Bible and say, you see that? It's not mentioned there. Therefore, this must be the case. That's dangerous. That's reading into the text something that's not there. Okay? And then another one, and we've talked about this a little bit already, I think, uh, interpreting the text allegorically or literally according to our preference rather than the text. If I, uh, There's an example of this from St. Augustine from way back when in church history. And he looked at the, um, the scripture talking about the Good Samaritan. And he said, the Good Samaritan is the world that falls into the ditch of sin. And um, the, the people that pass him by, that's the law of Moses that passes them by and doesn't save him. But the, the, the Jew who, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, um, the, the Samaritan that comes by and helps the person out of the ditch, that is the church that helps the world out of the ditch of sin and takes them to Jerusalem or the inn, and that's heaven. Is any of that in the text? No, absolutely not. He took a parable that was meant to teach about who's my neighbor and who's not my neighbor. That's the point of what Jesus was saying. But St. Augustine used that as an allegory to talk about a whole bunch of other things that St. Augustine wanted to talk about. Okay? That's dangerous. And we need to avoid that. But it's also just as dangerous, you know, just as using allegories where allegories are not intended, it's also dangerous to interpret things literally when that's not what was meant by that, okay? Um, and we can get into a whole bunch of examples of that, but one area to really guard against that is prophetic literature. Be careful of getting into books of prophecy, which are heavily symbolic, and reading those literally, okay? Um, how do we recognize and avoid this? Just a couple things, and then we're going to be done, because we're already running out of time. 
Number one, recognize that everyone has an interpretive lens. You have a way of reading scripture. And if you're if you don't recognize that, and if you're not, you don't know what your assumptions are and your biases are, I promise you, you'll read those into the Bible. So it I'm not saying you, you can get rid of them. None of us can, but you at least need to be aware of them and and be willing to change them if that's what the passage requires, if that's what God's Word requires. Okay? And then secondly, intentionally study different interpretations of passages. Not that you're going to adopt those passages, but it's always good, I think, to hear what other people think and what other people say and not be scared of that. Okay, let me give you an example. Okay, and I'll, I'll kind of close on this. I have a list of books here because I love books, all right? Three views on baptism. I've read this. Have it, has it changed my view on baptism? No. But at least now I understand why other people read those baptism passages differently and come away with different understandings of it, okay? Three views on the rapture, okay? Our miraculous gifts for today, the millennium and beyond, eternal security, what about those who have never heard? These are all books that give you uh, spirit baptism and Pentecostal views on it. All of these books are by evangelical conservative Christians who read passages that you and I read, and they understand them in different ways. You, they all agree on the core gospel issues. So I, I'm, I'm confident in saying that they are all born-again believers who will be in heaven, Okay. It's okay to interact with people who see things a little bit differently. It doesn't mean that you have to change your views. You don't have to be threatened by it. You can read it and say, that's really silly. That's not how I see that verse of Scripture, and be okay with it. Okay? But there may be things that you've heard all your life, and that's how you read Scripture, and that may not be the best way of reading that passage of Scripture. And if you, if you come across someone who has a view that seems like it lines up better with Scripture, in your opinion, that's okay too. Does that make sense? I know, I know, listen, believe me, I know how scary that can sound. There have been times where I have read passages one way for years and years and years, and then I, I, I talk to someone, I read something, and I'm like, well, that's very different from the way I've heard it, and it kind of makes a little bit more sense. And I've had to change some of my ideas about things because of that. And guess what? I don't think that dishonors God. I think that honors God. If it's true to His Word, 